Today on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast, we have a fascinating conversation about how soccer is a compelling alternative investment. We talk with Justin Papadakis, the COO of the United Soccer League, the largest, fastest growing professional soccer organization in the United States. In his current role, Justin oversees numerous departments that are critical to the league's success, including expansion, stadium development, digital media, emerging technology, finance, and human resources. Justin combines a real estate background, working six years at a REIT, with his soccer playing and sports management experience as he navigates building a league that is expanding in leaps and bounds. He holds a JD from Cleveland Marshall College of Law and earned a dual degree in public policy and economics from Duke University, where he also served as a goalkeeper for the Blue Devil soccer team. Justin and I had a fascinating conversation about how sports and investing are merging, in large part because of the collision of culture and finance. We discussed why soccer is such an underrated investable opportunity, how women's soccer is a sleeping giant, and what the USL is doing to help make it an investable opportunity, how real estate factors into the investment thesis for sports teams, how more professional investors and funds are now becoming involved in investing into teams, and how crowdfunding and DAOs can play a role in the sports investment landscape in the future. Thanks, Justin, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast to talk about how the beautiful game is continuing to grow thanks to the world of investing. Justin, welcome to the Elko's Mainstream Podcast. Thanks, Michael. Pleasure to have you on the podcast. I think, you know, you're operating at the intersection of a few really interesting things when it comes to the world of alternative investments. I've talked a lot about how culture is merging with finance, investing in sports teams. I've written about the sports stack. And that is, to some extent, what this is all about. You're building a league where people are investing into teams, but there's also a really interesting real estate component to this. Excited to dig into all of this. But first, I want to get into your background, which is actually all very relevant to what I just said, because you've had a fascinating background at the intersection of real estate, the game of soccer, both as a player and now on the sports management side. Tell us wh- where you started and how you ended up at the USL. Uh, like so many of my colleagues at the USL front office, we were players first. And I think that makes a big difference. We want to be a player-driven league. And that starts with really understanding the game of soccer and what really makes this what we believe is the most exciting game in the world. I think playing it gives us a unique perspective. For me, I had the fortune of playing growing up and then ultimately playing at Duke. And in my senior year in 2008, I was in LA with my dad, who is our CEO. And at that time, my dad and and our partner, Rob Hoskins, were looking to finalize the acquisition of, of the USL from Nike slash Umbro. What my dad told me, the intersection of sports and real estate is going to uh, be a driving force over the next 30 years. His recommendation for me was after college to go work in real estate to really understand that side of the business before coming back over to the USL. After college, I went and worked for uh, a large REIT, which was mostly a, a power center developer was DDR, now it's called Site Centers. It was the real estate crisis from late 08 through really three years to really get out of it, but had amazing bosses with Brian Zabel and Dan Hurwitz and and so many others that got to see the real estate industry at you know one of the most difficult times at the same time. And parallel to that, my dad and Rob and, and the USL team we're repositioning USL at the time that we bought it. Just for context, teams were fifty, hundred thousand dollars Not amateur adult league teams, but pretty close. Playing in largely high school stadiums, very low budgets. Transition to today, where we have teams now trading in the $60, $70 million range. Quite a journey. Excitingly, though, we are still very early 
as a league and from an asset perspective, we still have major revenue streams from media, player transfers, sports betting, stadium-related revenue, and real estate-related revenue that we believe were very early on, despite the significant increase in value. That takes us where we are today, where we have a, a lot of interest. We've proven that USL is investable, and we're kind of riding the, the coattails of NBA, NFL, MLB, NHL that have done such a good job improving professional sports as an asset class. We're excited because I think we bring unique investable opportunities that even those leagues don't have. That's a great jumping off point for sports being a great alternative investment. And really where I want to start is one, why do you think sports are a great alternative investment? And two, related to that, you as the USL are not the league that the NFL is or the NBA is maybe in terms of the media and maybe ticketing revenues, things like that. But there are other things that you're doing to enable the league to be an investable asset for many. So I'd love to understand and unpack that a little bit more. Sure. Well, I'm going to take the the second uh, question first. What you said is accurate, that today USL does not have as large of a media deal, even on a percentage basis, as the NFL, NBA, NHL. And that's true, but in our view, that is really the opportunity. With the transition to OTT, that is created essentially and benefits primarily sports, we believe, like USL. So going back, when you look at linear uh, TV, there could only be one game on at eight o'clock, and that's going to be the NFL, as it should. Transition now to OTT, there can be multiple games on, and these platforms are looking for content. And what we can deliver to these platforms is tonnage. Between our men's properties and starting next year, our women's properties, we're going to be delivering 1,200, which will ultimately peak out probably around 2,000 live games a year. From a platform perspective, with one deal uh, with the USL, they can reach core soccer audiences, which will be around 80 markets. And you add on women's teams, which could go from 40 to 80 alongside of it. When we think about our media deals going forward, that's not even baked into our current valuation. The NFL, because they're starting at a very large number, they're looking at 20, 40, doubling their media deals every couple of years. We're looking at many, many times that because we're starting off from a smaller base, from a future return potential, because we have a lower base, we believe that that's one of the exciting investable features of USL for the past uh, three years. We've proven our audience base. We've proven that soccer works in the United States. And we've proven that the, the fans will want to support their USL local team. So you're bringing up a few interesting points there, which I want to unpack. First of which being, you mentioned tonnage and the, the sheer volume of content that you're able to share because you're expanding both the number of markets, more teams are being added on the men's side. Now you're expanding also on, on the sheer team size by adding female teams as well. That's an interesting point because when you think about some of these other leagues, I think in part they're investable because they are trophy assets. There's scarcity value in 32 NFL teams. If you're an owner, you will be owning one of those 32 NFL teams and you'll get the value that comes with it, the media side and the ticketing side, the merchandise, et cetera. You seem to be taking a slightly different approach. I'd be curious to hear the business strategy around that. Obviously, there may be other reasons why NFL will only have 32 teams. Maybe they'll expand a bit, but why you have 80 teams going on another potentially 40 plus another 40 if you add on the women's side, which is not necessarily a better or worse strategy, just a different strategy in terms of creating value for both the league and then the owners and the teams. The analogy I like to use is in the beer space where... You have Budweiser and Heineken, and you have a couple brands that sell a lot of beer. They're great companies. Where we are, we're kind of in the craft beer space. We think that there's a movement happening now of supporting local. Whether we're talking about Des Moines, 
or we're talking about Queens, New York, where the MLS, they're doing a great job, but they're trying to be New York's team. And there are opportunities and difficulties associated with trying to be New York's team in the crowded New York entertainment space. Our approach is to have our team in Queens. We are just trying to be Queens's team. If we look at Long Island and you look at Fairfield, Connecticut, you look at other sub-markets within the larger New York metro, our strategy would be to go to be in Queens, there's 2.2 million people, is to be their team. We believe that with the movement for local, we can have a sustainable business on a four-wall basis because there's 2.2 million people that we're going to go to matches and you have the match revenue, you have the media revenue, you have all of that. When you put all of that together, we have a league which has all those same attributes just at a larger scale. Your question of comparing investing in the NFL versus USL, the first thing I'd say is I think the NFL does a great job. However, for a lot of your listeners that want exposure to the sport of soccer, that are bullish on the sport of soccer, If they want a football allocation, they can have football. If they want a soccer allocation, it's really MLS versus USL. Our argument would be from where we are today versus where we can be, we offer a greater return potential than the MLS. And our check size is smaller for a lot of investors. They don't want to put in $10, $50 million. They can come in, get exposure to sport of soccer for a lower check size, but a higher return potential because of the the re- future revenue drivers that we have. That's a really interesting point. And, and where I want to go with that is I think something that we've seen happen in the alternative investing space writ large, which is unlocking access to investable opportunities. We've seen this with crowdfunding. Uh, we've seen this with DAO structures. So we had Syndicate on the podcast. They're enabling people to create DAOs. You've seen it with Krauss House or Constitution DAO or Wagme United trying to enable the crowd or the community to also invest. H- how much do you think about that you're democratizing access to the game of soccer as owners? So fans could become owners. We saw it with one of your clubs, Detroit City. They did a crowdfunding campaign on WeFunder. But it also sounds like people who are high net worth individuals or business people may want to own a team that may cost a few million dollars instead of tens or hundreds of millions of dollars they wanted to buy another sports property. So how have you thought about that? And how do you think about the evolution of opening up access to soccer as an investable asset class for both high net worth, but also non-accredited investors who may want to participate with $500 or $1,000 because they're just fans of the game? Well, I think one of our advantages is that we really try to be you know, very progressive and we can move fast and we believe faster than your historic tier one leagues. There's a lot of reasons for that, but that is something that we see as one of our attributes. In terms of this non-accredited investor space, it's a huge opportunity. We want to be an investment first. That's priority number one. But we also think among the universe of an investable space, if a a accredited investor or non-accredited investor can invest in their community and invest in a club that's their team, we think that we're seeing that that is moving the needle. We want to win out on the investment thesis first. And then the fact that it happens to benefit their local city is something that's a bonus. But again, to your question, it's something that's very interesting for us and something that we want to be out front on. And we're thinking a lot about it. And it's something I think you'll see more of in the USL than in the you know historic tier one leagues. Who are the types of people who are investing in clubs and and also break down like there may be majority owners of clubs and then there may be minority owners of clubs. How do you think about the different ownership groups within teams within the USL? And how do you think about the shape of that and how that works? Well, we, we do have a full spectrum. There are teams that have one owner or one ownership family, and we have teams with large groups of owners. I don't think that there's a right way and a wrong way. My preference and what we see as a trend, and I I, I think it's better for a lot of reasons, is the group. Not because of the need for capital, 
but because we really want to make it an asset that has a lot of stakeholders. And whether that's community stakeholders or accredited investors stakeholders, the capital is the insignificant part. What we want is the relationships, the connections, the expertise of those individuals. We try to really look at getting individuals with different expertise and backgrounds so that our ownership is really a board that can not only manage their club, but also collectively brings thousands of relationships to the league. And I'll tell you an example of, of how we have a plan to, to, to leverage that. So within our, our sponsorship group, we have a, a program that we just launched recently where if a team brings in a national sponsor, they get a, a high percentage of that sponsorship deal back to the team. With our hundreds of owners across our league and adding hundreds more, leveraging all of their relationships with business leaders in their community and across their social networks will enable us to bring in a, a large amount of national sponsorship deals, which then half of that goes back out to the teams. That's where we can scale up our league while also financially incentivizing our teams and our owners from a direct payment position. So basically you're saying that teams may help the, the league, the USL, actually get sponsors and sponsorship revenue for the league itself that then flows down to all the league owners. Correct. For all of our national sponsorship deals, the teams get 50% as is. However, if a team brings a national partner to the table, they get 15% of that deal value that goes back to them. And then the rest uh, gets divvied up between the league and the team. It's great because like, I'll give you an example in Omaha, they had a partner with Bellevue University, which is an online university, and they brought that deal to the league. And as a result of that, now all of our teams get, as part of our sponsorship package with them, one four-year uh, free scholarship per year, and it's a four-year deal. In effect, they're getting four free four-year scholarships, which then they can give as a value to a player uh, coming in. And they can still have local university partnerships. That's just what they get as part of this national deal we're going to start seeing a lot of leveraging their personal relationships. We're a great partner for Bellevue. And in return, because of a connection that our uh, team had and our owners had, they are now also leveraging that value for the rest of the teams in, in the league. Earlier, you mentioned that linear media is in decline. OTT media is is increasing, which I, I would love for you to explain what OTT means to those who don't know it and why it's important. But I think this relates to the sponsorship question of why sponsors want to be a part of a league like the USL and then how that helps flow down to the revenue for the league, which again, obviously makes this a more attractive investment for everybody who's a stakeholder involved. Sure. So quickly on OTT versus linear, think of OTT as Netflix, Amazon Prime, HBO Max, Paramount, Paramount, Discovery Plus. Going back about four years ago when we did our last deal, none of those existed. Everyone probably subscribes to them today, but four years ago, none of them existed. ESPN Plus was coming on, I think, about halfway through our first season, but at the time had zero subscribers. They thought it was going to be good, but they didn't know. With zero subscribers, it was a pure investment from Disney corporate in this potential new platform. Fast forward to today when we're going and negotiating our next TV deal, that'll start next year. These platforms, one, there's more than one to negotiate with. Now there's six or seven. Not only there's six or seven, but they all have significant subscriber bases. And except for an Apple or a Google, because they have different dynamics, their future of their companies is dependent on their OTT platform. Now they are investing into content in a massive way. Also in parallel to that, the USL has proven we have a viewership base. We're gonna be in 80 markets in the next five years. You have the buildup to the World Cup coming here to the United States in 2026. So with one deal, 
a platform can get 2,000 games in addition to what's happening across the country is this consolidation of the youth soccer space within the markets underneath the pro teams. But you essentially have a built-in soccer vertical for subscription that we could sell subscriptions through with one deal across the country. That's significant value. When we look at our next media deal, we aren't looking at uh, 50%, 1x, 2x, 3x. We're looking for a, a significant increase, and that's not built into our current valuation models. Valuation for the league or for the teams? For the teams. Right now, our league is very early in maturity. Broadcast is a cost. That will move in the next couple of years over to a significant net revenue. That flip, when we look at our teams, just four-wall economics, that flip is material. When you add that into some of the other significant changes that are going to happen in our revenue streams, then you can start to see the real potential for where our teams will be valued at once those uh, revenue streams are in place. I think you bring up some interesting things there, there around opening up the market, accessing new fans, which is valuable to sponsors. We've seen this in the women's game in a big way, both at the national team level with the likes of Visa and Nike becoming title sponsors for the team and that actually increasing brand engagement. You're seeing it with the NWSL as well in terms of opening up a whole new set of viewers who then now attract sponsors and then those sponsors can reach them. What's your thesis around adding women's teams to the league as well? And what drove you to do that? Was it sponsors? Was it just the, the increase in popularity? Is it the markets are asking for them? Walk us through that whole thesis, because that seems to add to the whole investment thesis as well, and a lot of the trends that we've been seeing in the growth in the women's game. So first and foremost, uh, the league and our owners think that it's the right thing to do. They also believe in the business model of women's sports. For a sport to succeed, you have to have both. Because this is an investing podcast, I'll focus more on the investment side here. I think it's a huge underrated investment opportunity. So that's perfect. Okay. So from an investment side, one, women's soccer in the United States has a, some different dynamics than men's soccer. It's a, not a great comparison, but I'd say American women's soccer is the Brazil, so to speak, of men's soccer in that it is the gold standard. We have the best uh, athletes in the world, and the world largely looks at the United States as having the best women's soccer players. If we start there, one of the issues is that there's only a couple hundred women's professional playing jobs in the NWSL. We are going to dramatically change that. We are building at least another 30 stadiums over the next four years. From a PL basis, having women's soccer and men's soccer makes sense because the stadium, men play up to 25 dates, but then we still have 340 days left in the year. Having another 25 dates on the women's side leverages the fixed asset of the stadium. And then from a financing perspective, you can underwrite more debt on it. Your sponsorship, stadium naming rights, for example, goes up because you have double the number of people coming to the stadium. You have more TV exposure, et cetera. You can build a better stadium with more structural revenues by having those fixed dates in there. From a front office perspective, you have a lot of economies of scale where you probably have one president, you have one CFO, you have one CRO. And then you have some team-specific people. Obviously, players and coaches will, will be separate. When you go down to the facility side, we're building training centers. You have two teams instead of one. When you get down to the youth side, half of our youth academies are girls. Having that pathway for those uh, players to look up and say, and it, this is, again, so important for us, is the little girl who goes to the game needs to say, if I work as hard and I train as hard as my you know, friend that's a boy, I want to play under the lights on ESPN, and I can do that just the same as, as my friend that's a boy or my brother. So I think you have that aspect. We can 
package up our media rights, our sponsorship rights. Collectively, our book of business, per se, is larger so that we can go to partners, media partners, commercial partners, and take advantage of, of our scale as a league to drive down our, our cost structure. Mm -hmm. And on that point, you're going to be able to reach so many more people. There may be people who are interested in the women's game, but not interested in the men's game. And sponsors are able to reach those people and talk to them too, who otherwise you'd be missing out on. It, it also sounds like you're going to structure it in a way where the, the teams are going to be built in tandem. So an owner of a men's USL team would then also bolt on a women's team as well. Is every team going to be structured that way where it's there's going to be a men's team and a women's team under one umbrella? Going forward, a lot will be. However, I would say in many cases, it's going to be a men's team is being bolted on to the women's team uh, because we believe that the value of the Super League, which is our professional league franchise, will be the same or potentially even greater than our men's teams. When we're looking at it from an asset perspective, right now, our men's teams are seeing significant valuation growth. When you add on the asset value of the women's side, plus the P&L efficiencies of the women's side, when you have a club, that's a big difference in soccer. We have clubs, not teams, because there's more than there's the men's team, the women's team, and all the academy teams. And so the value of that club we believe will be, well, that's a organically significant driver because you're adding a, a whole nother asset in the women's side. So it makes sense on the asset side and it makes sense on the P&L side, in addition to the more important aspect of the right thing to do. But when we're focused purely on the financial side, it, it makes sense on both sides of the investment analysis. I want to bring up something that, that I think will resonate with your prior comment, which is that Joe Mansueto, who's notably the founder of Morningstar, a financial services firm, but also the owner of Chicago Fire, said a few years ago that investing in MLS teams is like investing in tech stocks. He's implying that there's significant growth in valuations. You look at the likes of the Sounders. If, if you had been an owner of the Sounders when they had first started, I think it was a $40 million valuation. Now, I think last reported valuation was $400 million. And I, I'm sure it's north of that at this point, given the growth in MLS club valuations. That's a 10x return in, in a private equity-like fund cycle. These are really attractive returns, provided that you're investing in the right team, the right league, in a growing market. How do you think about that comment that these are like investing into quote unquote tech stocks, as Joe Mansueto said, and in light of what you just said about growth of potential valuations and the growth of the league and the growth of the game more globally? I think Joe was very accurate in that. And I think USL is where the MLS from a valuation history perspective was 10 years ago. From an analysis perspective, can the MLS at a $400 million valuation hit a 10X, which would put them above most NFL teams? Potentially, but the law of large numbers starts to come into a play. For USL, can we get there? We haven't hit our first media deal. We'll be the next big one. Player transfers for the MLS and USL, now that American players are being recognized around the world, that's going to be a major revenue stream. Sports betting, we're getting stadiums now with structural revenue streams to support growth because we're investable now from a municipal standpoint so we can build proper stadiums. That's where the MLS hit their big jump. That's where the USL is now. We have, we think the better benefit because for their past 10 years, they've been living in a linear TV world, which is difficult. And the player transaction side wasn't there yet. Today, in our next 10 years, we are looking at the stars aligning a little bit more because soccer's further along. Soccer as an asset class is further along. And the media and player transfers, the more in line to accommodate USL's growth than they were 10 years ago for the MLS. Mm-hmm. Both the you know the MLS has grown as a league, USL has grown as a league. How should investors who are thinking about investing into a USL property think about investing in a league that does not have the the TV rights and it is also a league that is I don't mean this in a disparaging way but at a higher level on the football pyramid? 
And again, to your point, the investment value proposition may actually be greater because it's what's the multiple of return from a certain entry point where 400 million or $500 million valuation might be tougher to 10X that in the MLS, but maybe possible to 10X that in the USL. How should people think about that in the context of the MLS is the top of the US football pyramid, much like the English premiership is the top of the English football pyramid. How do you think about that when thinking about building a business and building investable assets for those who are investing into teams? Where I would start is that like any other investment, we should look at which company or, or league in this case has the highest return potential. And what are this, what's the risk associated with getting there? We would argue that the USL has a higher return potential than the MLS. So that'd be point one. Point two would be when you look across other uh, industries or, or asset classes, the most expensive or the largest in tier one doesn't always mean the best investment. I go back to the beer example. If you go back 10, 15 years and you look at Bud Light year-over-year growth versus the craft beer category significantly outperformed your mainstream beers. You could look at many other areas where that's the case. I think it comes back to how you approach investments and the, the allocation that you want to put in. You can have a smaller dollar terms allocation for soccer across many other markets. And in many cases, start a team as an expansion team. So you're coming in a very lower base than coming in at a fully priced asset which you could argue other leagues are because they've been around significantly longer. How much does the success of the USL and, and vice versa with the, the MLS success depend on each other? Obviously, unlike European football and, and other leagues around the world, there's no promotion, which can be a very lucrative thing. We've seen it countless times where it's the 90 million pound promotion in the English Premier League for a team going from championship to the premiership. And that's a huge windfall for the club and honestly for the community, because that really helps a town like Hull City or Watford, things like that. You don't have that dynamic in the US where MLS teams are getting relegated, USL teams are getting promoted to the MLS. How do you think about the interplay between those two leagues and how do you have to work together to create just soccer in general, not just the MLS or the USL, as a better investable asset class for those who are involved in the game? Having soccer succeed in the United States is great for the MLS, it's great for the USL, and it's great for the NWSL. All three leagues need to work together and do work together in that sense because we do have a common goal of creating and enhancing the sport of soccer in the United States. We have a lot of respect for the MLS. We have a lot of respect for the NWSL. For the sport to succeed, you need an ecosystem. That means players, coaches, front office staff, media staff, media people, referees. You need all this ecosystem. I would be very confident saying from the MLS or the NWSL, saying that by USL having a team in Des Moines, Iowa now that we announced recently, in a $550 million development with an $80-plus million stadium and the investment that that ownership group is going to put in to create top-level professional soccer in Iowa, that does anything but advance the sport of soccer in the United States. The more investment that goes in, the better it is for the country. There's also significant potential interplay. The MLS, I think for the foreseeable future, will have higher budgets from a player perspective than we do, we're putting a huge emphasis in player development and developing players, which we will sell to the Premier League, to the Bundesliga, or to the MLS. We sell to you know the, the highest bidder. A lot of times that could be the MLS. They have an advantage because of the amount of foreign playing spots. That is good for the MLS. That's good for the USL. So I think we're all three you know, entities working together to advance the sport. When you look at 1994, which one of the primary goals of hosting the 94 World Cup was to foster and develop professional soccer in the United States, you, and then in 2026, you'll have 30, 32 MLS teams that are very strong, and that's great. You'll have 80 USL men's teams. You'll have 
40 to 60 Super League women's teams, and you'll have 10 to 20 NWSL teams. That'll be a remarkable achievement for, for the soccer community in the United States. When you zoom out and put it like that, you see the growth, just the sheer growth of the number of teams. MLS didn't even exist in 94. It's pretty remarkable to think what the game has gone through if you think about this as a company or each league as a company and the growth of those leagues and the properties underneath them, which is fascinating. I I do want to get to the real estate aspect of this because you've mentioned about how building out stadiums represents an interesting investment opportunity itself, both in terms of from an opportunity zone perspective or from building out the local community and the businesses around it. I I lived in London, played over there. You see how embedded in many of these communities these teams are. There's literally row houses right next to the stadium. And it's so visceral when you see that. And it sounds like you're really approaching the real estate aspect of this as trying to prioritize building soccer-specific stadiums downtown in different areas in these cities, which should, in theory, help create vibrant economic zones in these cities. I'd, I'd love to unpack that a little more and how you're thinking about the real estate side of this from an investment perspective. We're taking a unique approach in sports. No one's kind of done it in this way at this scale that I think the USL done it. We made a, a league decision four and a half, five years ago to go out because of the growth expansion potential we had to start structuring stadium deals and stadium plus most times ancillary stadium developments as well across the country. That's why this year, because of that groundwork that we've done where we've assembled land, we've created local relationships, we have put financing together, et cetera, that will have in 2022, the largest in terms of new team announcements ever in soccer and in any league, I would say. And we've done that because of this real estate-focused approach that we've done. From an investing side, we thought there was a unique opportunity that we knew that directionally we were proving USL as an asset class. That was going well because all the things we just talked about. Then if we could marry that up with, in many cases, the real estate aspect, a traditional asset class, that marriage could produce something very interesting and interesting from a financial standpoint. And of course, symbiotic in that we were going and if you have a better development, you have more people coming to the game, which makes the team better, which makes the finished experience better. And you create a positive feedback loop. Additionally, and importantly, we saw a a huge opportunity to go into and work with our you know amazing city county and state partners to drive billions of dollars of economic development to our cities and that is no more important i think than today where a lot of small businesses post covid have been really impacted and we made a you know very significant decision is we really wanted to be in in the urban core where we thought we could you know have the biggest impact you've seen that at work and the rest of 22 will be very exciting because all these deals that we've been working on a lot of them will be announced that's where every deal every city we become more investable from a municipal standpoint which makes the the next deal better and more financially attractive how much does the league play a role in helping to analyze and structure and then work with the municipalities on the real estate side of this versus the individual team owners figuring out how to find the land, how to make this an attractive or investable real estate investment when they're investing into the stadium and maybe owning a part of that development process as well. In all of our real estate stadium deals, the eventual owner or ownership group will be the owner of the site and the associate economics from that development. What we've done at the league level is to go and support those, which is multi-millions of dollars across so many projects, all these pre-development cost, time, expertise, et cetera, to structure those deals. 
in some cases, the owner takes the lead from day one. In most other cases, the league, we've been working on the deal for several years. Then at a later point after we have a lot of the high level framework of the deal figured out, we'll bring an ownership group that'll take it over the line. That's where we saw an opportunity to really accelerate growth by working on and taking those significant pre-development cost and risk for four and a half years now to get to that point where we could bring an ownership group that could get the stadium anchor development over the line. This may be an uninformed or uneducated question, but why would the league not want to create a real estate investment entity themselves and be the owner of the real estate and then partner with the teams to do that. And, and that becomes another way in which the league could actually generate revenue and, and value from owning the, the real estate assets themselves. It's a great question. Right before our call, I was having a conversation with one of our owners about that. So the reason for the stadium anchor deal is that we want the owner which again, we are largely local ownership group to realize those economics and have that community buy-in. What we've done as a league, we've taken the capital light approach of we'll spend the pre-development dollars, but then we'll flip it to the team. We'll recoup our cost. For the league, our goal is to have long-term enterprise value of running a league. It's not to be a real estate developer. However, we are working on some adjacent real estate strategies that we can leverage the size of the league to create asset value for our owners. We create a whole department into facility rentals this year. Now that we have our stadium and adjacent real estate set up, we're focused on other real estate development opportunities with fields, training centers, housing other areas that we can create a sidecar investment for our ownership groups to realize additional asset growth. I think what you're speaking to is that being a newer league, you're able to really think about things in newer and innovative ways. I want to touch on two things in that regard beyond the real estate side. One is mentioned it a little bit earlier around crowdfunding. And Detroit City is one of the teams that actually has worked with WeFunder, a crowdfunding platform, enabled their fans to be able to invest into the club themselves and become equity owners in the club. How do you think about the advent of crowdfunding in the context of enabling fans to become owners? And do you think that's really a part of the future of sports ownership? I think it's an exciting new aspect. We believe having larger community buy-in is helpful to our teams. That's what we're all about. When we look at these new platforms and some regulatory changes that help facilitate uh, that, I think it's exciting. We want to approach USL as an investment. So I think we would want to lead with that. There are other mechanisms that we can work on to have community buy-in. But from an investor piece, that's something that we do see a lot of potential in, and now with crypto, there's other kind of opportunities. We're working on some things in that space with our clubs and our thesis of, of our ownership group that we want to be innovative and, and nimble. I think you know we'll be able to implement some of those more quickly and in a larger way than other, other leagues that have more of a, a legacy ownership structure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I want to go there next, which is you mentioned crypto and the potential for crypto to actually enable ownership. I think ownership is a big theme around why alternative investments are going mainstream, why crypto is going mainstream is because people are now able to be owners of things. What are some of the types of things you're doing in crypto? And do you think some of the things that's happened in the DAO space, like Krauss House DAO is trying to buy an NBA team? I think Wagme United is trying to form a DAO to buy an English soccer team. Do you think that the DAO space has a future in funding and managing sports teams? Is that how you're thinking about engaging the crypto world and leveraging it to, to help and benefit your teams and players and fans? Yeah, I think what both of those groups are doing is, is very interesting. From league perspective, 
We do want to be a league that's on the cutting edge. Those types of opportunities are ones that I think are more conducive to the USL. In the legacy leagues, there's a lot of framework challenges, I think, that they'll have in doing that. But that's something that with our progressive fan base as soccer, that I think our fans would really respond to and is some, something that would work well within the USL. We want to have those conversations. Our first and uh, foremost priority is just running successful clubs and making sure we take care of all of our stakeholders, players as for, for, foremost. But we think that we can do both. And these new investment platforms that are community-driven, that are ownership-driven, they just lend themselves so well to community-driven clubs. So we think that there's a lot of potential in that space. What do you think the sports world needs more from when it comes to investors? Are there certain types of investors who would add value to the sports world that the sports world doesn't have as much? If, if you could speak to investors, what would you say to them? Well, I, I think that what we're seeing is a transition from... 10 years ago, when we bought the USL, you had owners that really like soccer. They're just soccer enthusiasts. Now we're in a sports investor that really see the long-term potential. Adding into that is a little of a real estate side because of what we're doing. When we look at our next level of ownership groups, we do want to democratize it a little bit. That's where I think having larger groups at the NFL they took an approach, which isn't our approach, where they largely have 32 owners. We have a couple of variations on that. I think the NBA did a good job of really opening it up to groups. And now opening it up even more, too, with things like secondary market purchases with like Dial Home Court, which I want to get to in a second as well. Now you have the advent of private equity really looking at, at sports. They are now viewing USL as an investable league. I think you'll see some exciting things in that space in the coming months. And now we'll, we have this opportunity from a community perspective to come together and invest in a brand and a club that means something for them. That's one of our key advantages, especially with new expansion clubs, is unlike, for example, minor league baseball teams that have been around for 100 years, our fans love that they can create these new clubs with the values as constitutional values of today. When you start a new club, you create the new traditions, you create the values. Those are things that I think are, are really exciting that will be this next generation of democratized uh, ownership. Interesting. I mean, I think you mentioned funds playing more of a role in investing in teams. That is truly the pinnacle of seeing in this as an investment use case. Their funds are taking investors' monies as LPs. They are investing that money into return-generating activities or, or, in theory, return-generating activities. That means that this is an investable asset class, whether it's the USL or soccer as a whole uh, or sports more broadly as a whole. And I think that's been proven out over the course of this conversation. What do you anticipate that looking like going forward? Do you anticipate as a league dealing more with funds, professional funds as potential owners? I think you'll see funds having an increased presence for sure. We do believe a lot in community though. So we'll really want to make sure that those funds are aligned with our mission, with our values. We want to make money. We are investment. But we also have values that are progressive in a lot of ways. We want to make sure that the funds have similar sorts of values. We do see a lot of inherent value in community ownership. That can be through crowdfunding. That can be through individuals within the community having ownership potential. But again, I think of the ownership structure, funds can bring expertise, they can bring capital, and they can bring a collective amount of wisdom to our larger ownership group that together with the front office can help us keep moving this league forward from an asset perspective, from a fan engagement perspective, 
and from uh, a quality on field perspective. So we need all of those to happen. And I think that those are happening now in a real way because USL has achieved investment grade status as a sports league. I think that's a great segue into something I always ask every guest to, to end the Alco's Mainstream podcast, which is what is your favorite or most interesting investment opportunity in the alt space? Well, I'm a little biased, but I think that USL and soccer have to be up there. People now, when they go out, they're not going out just to buy something. They're going out for a live experience. What we're creating across the USL is a platform, you know, which will essentially have all the five to 15,000 seat stadiums across the country. And once we built that platform, there are uh, so many derivatives that we can start to add on to our platform, like on the women's side and a lot of other things that we're working on that can own a big piece of a growing sport and now a tier one sport in the United States with soccer. It's exciting. And that's only going to increase as soccer is put under the bright spotlight in the ramp up to the 2026 World Cup. That's great to hear. And it'll be fascinating. I'll have to have you on in 2026 after we complete the World Cup here to talk again about how the growth of the game has just continued to increase in size and scale, more fans, more sponsors, more professional investors and funds, because it, it seems like it's really on an upward trend as a sport. And then more generally with the USL when it comes to growing the game and having a real estate investment opportunity. So this is a fascinating conversation explaining why sports is a really interesting investable asset class and soccer in particular. So Justin, th thanks so much for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Big fan of the podcast and appreciate you having me on. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alco's Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Stigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going